0: People have asked me what would cause the correction. I think the most likely cause to a correction in the markets right now is the Federal Reserve backing off on its purchasing of bonds in the open market, which would cause interest rates to start to rise.
1: Once more unto the breach, dear friends, Else, will close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, aspirationally, boys and girls. Uh, welcome to the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jeff McClure and the Personal Wealth Coach.
0: Flying car concept will work real well at some point in the future, perhaps, maybe, but I don't think so. Not in my lifetime, and although my lifetime is relatively short, I don't think it's Jake's lifetime either. We still haven't got air traffic nailed down. We uh, keep a pretty good distance between airliners and airplanes. And if we get very many cars in the air, we're going to have a lot of trouble controlling them. Uh, it's far more efficient and far more effective to control cars on the ground. To, if we get an automated car system on the ground where the cars can maintain their distance and be in under centralized control of some kind or centralized and or decentralized control, that will be far more efficient than trying to do it in the air. Why? Well, having been a pilot for 30 years, off and on, I can tell you that bad weather does not not make for good flying situations. The closest thing we have to a flying car right now is a helicopter, and it's prevented from being an effective flying car because it's too expensive, and you can't drive them around on the street once you land it. But even helicopters have an unusually high number of fatalities and crashes when they're trying to fly in all kinds of weather. We have an ongoing problem with the helicopters from EMS running into problems when they don't need to run into problems because of bad weather. Uh, wires. It's just, it's just flying car concept is, a, is an idea looking for someplace to, to occur. And it isn't, it isn't a good program yet. I don't think it's going to turn into anything significant. What I do think will turn into something significant at some point is the ability to have automated cars on the ground. Now, it may be be 10 years, it may be 15 years before they turn out well. But the concept of having cars on the ground that can get from point A to point B without human input, or at least under under control while they're on the highway, on the streets, is very real and very possible. Uh, Right now, there's a lot of investment going on in truck traffic on the interstate highways that's able to maneuver from one place to another, basically with somebody just monitoring it, and I think we'll see more and more of that. One of the things that's come out about, even about artificial intelligence driving cars, is it's a lot more difficult than people thought it was, and it's going to be a lot more a lot of time before it occurs. The reason is streets are very poorly marked. If all streets had white lines on both sides and a yellow line down the middle or even a white line down the middle where the car could figure out where it was all the time, that would work out really well. And the other thing we have to do away with is four-way stops. I don't know if you've ever thought about what happens when you come to a four-way stop. By the way, if you have to think about it at a four-way stop, you're probably in trouble. But as you pull up to a four-way stop, there's little body language signals that go back and forth between the drivers. Because sometimes, I've I've been to a four-way stop here in Salado, where all four cars pull up at virtually the same moment. Which one is on the right at that time? Well, you kind of nod and people wave and, and we move on, and it's really, really hard for an artificial intelligence to figure out who's doing what, where, and how. They're just not as smart as people are. It'll be a while before fully self-driving cars are available, and it'll be a lot longer before we have flying cars. It would be nice to have roadways in the highway in the sky where we'd have self-flying cars that could go from one point to another, but the problem is airplanes have to be light and relatively fragile, and the other thing is there's the problem of air sickness. A lot of people... If if an aircraft is light enough to be effective as a flying car, it's going to bump around a lot up in the air when we get turbulence. And days like today would not be a good day to try to be in a flying car. So I don't think flying cars are going to go very far, Alan. Uh, At some point, maybe. But it'll be a while. It'll be a long while in all likelihood. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, as I said, we can pack a lot more cars into the highways that we have by simply increasing the, decreasing the distance between cars by putting an automated system in. It'd be very expensive to put an automated system in where the cars can track themselves down the highway and they're tracked by a central computer and they track, they're capable of autonomous tracking at the same time. Will that happen? Maybe by the end of this decade, we'll see that in in significant use. That's optimistic, by the way, in my opinion. Jake's a little more optimistic about it than I am, but I'm thinking that by the end of this decade, by the end of the 2020s, I think there'll be a lot of electric automated cars. Interesting point, by the way, is the European Union is planning on phasing out internal combustion automobiles by 2035. They just won't be anymore, which is pretty significant. It's going to happen here, too, which is driving, by the way, the price of oil right now. That sounds like a weird segue, but it's the way it goes. Um, the price of oil is fluctuating right now and has risen because OPEC wants to raise the quotas that for everybody equally, and one member of OPEC, the United Arab Emirates, is holding out, and they're blocking the raising of quotas. In other words, they're blocking the increase in oil supply to the rest of the world which is why oil prices have risen from the $50, $60 range up to about 74 in West Texas Intermediate Crude. Why is the United Arab Emirates blocking the sale, blocking the deal? They want a bigger piece of the action. And they've normally been solidly in lockstep with Saudi Arabia. But they've, they've officially announced on several occasions and privately announced on other occasions that they're concerned. And they're concerned that the European Union phasing out regular automobiles internal combustion automobiles, and the United States gradually going towards electric automobiles means that the price of oil eventually is going to come down. It's going to come down dramatically. So they're sitting on this huge reserve of oil underground that is likely to deteriorate in value value over the next several decades. And they want to sell it now. They want to get it out now and invest it in other things. And yet OPEC limits the amount of oil they can release into the open market. The other thing that a lot of people are, that they're concerned about is that Iran may be coming back on market online with uh, the negotiations over their nuclear program if they decide to back off their nuclear program which by the way I don't think they're going to do then they could come back in and there'd be a lot of oil on the market that when that oil gets dumped on the market the price of oil will come down again in other words There used to be a problem. In the late 1990s, there was this discussion of peak oil. We'd hit peak oil production, and prices were going to go through the stratosphere, and they were always going to go up because there's only so much oil that could be profitably extracted from the ground. Now we know that's not true. Shale fracking pulls a lot of oil out of the ground that otherwise would be unavailable. And technology, once oil gets to a certain price, ramps up and figures out how to get the oil out of the ground, as long as the oil is at a high enough price. The backside to that is... There's a reality, and I don't know where you stand, where our listeners stand politically on this, but the reality is there's a massive heat wave hitting the West Coast and up into British Columbia that's killing people. There's a massive heat wave hitting in several places. There's massive droughts hitting. This is climate change. And at least some of that climate change, and maybe the majority of it, is being generated by the fact that there's a lot more carbon dioxide in the air than there used to be. Now, that's not political, that's not anything except for the fact that reality. there's a monitor reality. There's a monitor on top of Mauna Loa in Hawaii that's been monitoring the carbon dioxide concentration in the air since the 1930s. And the carbon dioxide is like 10 times the percentage that it was in the 1930s. And where it's coming from is primarily us. As we gradually transition to renewable energy and use less and less carbon-producing fuel, which we're going to do over time, the price of oil will likely come down. Could it go to $100 a barrel again? Sure, in a crisis. But I think we won't ever see it at $100 a barrel again unless there is a crisis. And I think it will gradually decline over time. Matter of fact, the oil futures markets are agreeing with me at this point. As I said last hour, the futures contracts out in November and December at $72 a barrel, whereas it's $74 a barrel in the short-term market. Things are changing. We may not like them to change, but they're going to change anyway. They're going to change, and they're going to continue to change. And we're seeing a lot of whiplash change in this current economy. Again, this is the Personal Wealth Coach. You're listening to Jeff McClure. And the, if you'd like to contact us, you can, we'll, I'll address this. Address whatever you send me on the air. You can send me an email at tpwc.com, www.tangopapawhiskeycharlie.com, jeff at tanglepapawhiskey.com. I'm sorry. And I'm here here by myself with my brain running at full speed. There's a couple of things we can learn from this year that are very important. It's a good time to look back and learn them. One of the things is that the markets behaved rationally last year and this year. We had a market crash last year, and a lot of people got scared. And we got some calls from people who wanted to bail out of the market. And fortunately none of our clients did, but obviously a lot of people bailed out of the market and sold because that's why the market went down. The market went down because people didn't have faith that we would recover from the pandemic. Not only have we recovered from the pandemic, the people who bailed out in many cases missed the early leg la- the early stages and sometimes the whole thing of one of the greatest bull markets that we've seen in history. Certainly the fastest snapback from a recession that we've seen in modern history. The same Calls, the same thing happened in 2000 through 2002, and the same thing happened in 1987. I've I've been around long enough to remember those things. The same things happened in in each downturn to the market. One of the things that's important to understand about the stock market is you're going to find the market turned down at some point. It's going to happen. Why? Well, for the same reason if you've flown over a river, over the Mississippi River flying to the East Coast or someplace, and you look down and it zigzags. It doesn't go in a straight line. The nature of such things is that they zigzag. The volatility in the stock market recently has been very, very low. And yet over time, there's this powerful force called reversion to the mean. And reversion to the mean says we're going to pay for that that low volatility at some point. Bull markets inevitably have corrections. Why do they have corrections? Well, there's a lot of esoteric theory around that, but they always have, and they probably always will. And this bull market has nearly doubled in value. It's up about 95% from its bottom, and it rose another 0.4% this week, so now it's close to 95.4%, maybe 96% from its bottom. It is very, very, very hard to go back through history at any point and find a market that has doubled in value from the bottom that didn't have a correction along the way. Now, what's the difference between a correction and a bull market or a bear market? Correction is a bunch of flight frightened ducks running in one direction because one duck ran in that direction. And we're likely to get that at any point. Something disappointing will happen. Something unusual, something unexpected will happen. And the people who are afraid will bail out of the market and we'll get a correction. Are we likely to have a bear market at this point? Actually, no. Why are we not likely to have a bear market? Bear markets ride on the economy just like bull markets do. We have a bullish economy. We have an economy that's growing At phenomenal rates of speed. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons given, one of the several reasons given for Thursday's drop in the market, before it recovered and went on for gains for the week, was that the ISM service index was only 60.1 rather than 63, which was had been expected. Now, what's an ISM service index? Purchasing manager service and PMI service index. The Institute for Supply Management surveys purchasing managers. That's the people who buy stuff in advance for what businesses are going to sell in the immediate future or they're going to make in the immediate future. And they're the most reliable indicator of what's going to happen because the business owners and the business managers who control that buying have their finger on the pulse of what's going on with their customers. And 50 is the division between growth and shrinkage. 50 if you're below 50, if the ISM PMI index is below 50, then the buyers, the, the advanced buyers, the purchasing managers are saying, we're buying less now than we, than we bought last month. We're slowing down our buying because we anticipate a slowdown in the economy. Anything above 50 indicates they anticipate growth in their local business and thereby growth in the total economy. It's, it's, it's over 60. Now, that's very rare in history that it gets over 60. 60 is phenomenally high. The fact that the market took a dip because it wasn't 63 is absurd, but that's the way the market is. There's a lot of people who are buying and selling in the stock market right now who have very little understanding of economics and very little understanding of history and very little knowledge of history, and they're looking for something to be afraid of because the market is, and I quote, high, end quote. But the Purchasing Managers Index is like 63 for manufacturing products in the United States, and it's above 660.49, I think it is, is where it came in this week, for services, which indicate things are going like gangbusters. Now, the backside of that is the labor side of the Purchasing Managers Index, that's a, that's a component in the total index, is at 48, which indicates they're having trouble hiring people. They have fewer people working than they would prefer to have working. That's an ongoing problem, but we talked about that last hour at some length. That's not going away real soon. There's a couple, and there's several reasons. One of them, by the way, is uh, we have far less immigration going on, far less immigration, legal or illegal, going on in the United States now than we had two years ago. And because the low immigration means there's a relatively low number of people coming in who are willing to take low-paying jobs because at first, they're just now entering the country. And that's in construction, that's in services, that's in waiting, that's in driving taxis, that's in anything. Uh, and that's an ongoing problem in the United States. One of the reasons the United States economy has done so very, very well over the years is we've had a high immigration index. And you might not want to think about that, but whoever you are listening to this, there's a very, very high probability that your ancestors immigrated to the United States from someplace else. Then you know where they immigrated from or at least you have a good idea where they immigrated from. That's not true in Europe. If you live in Germany and you're German, you probably don't have any idea that your ancestors came from anywhere else. You were one of the Germanic tribes. If you live in France and you're French, you were one of the French tribes. Your ancestors were. So we have a unique, nearly unique situation in the world in that our economy is largely driven by immigration. Sure, it's uncomfortable to have people come in speaking foreign languages just like it was the, 100 years ago when the Europeans, the Eastern Europeans were pouring in the United States speaking foreign languages and being... Being isolated in ghettos, but that's the people that Henry Ford put to work, by the way, in his automobile factories. We have, because of COVID primarily and because of some of our policies, we restricted immigration. That, frankly, is a problem. The reason it's a problem is we're not having enough babies in the United States to replace our population. And once the demographic starts going into reverse, eventually, inevitably through history, nations whose demographics go into reverse where they don't have enough new young people coming in to replace the older people start to slide downhill. It'd be kind of nice if you could just have a bunch of old people that retired and nobody working, but it doesn't work that way. We'll either have to get the immigration up or hire a bunch of robots, which I don't think the robotic industry is ready to do yet. That's something you might want to, if you object to that, certainly send me an email at jeff at tpwc.com and we can talk about it. Uh, but it's reality. One of the reasons the United States has occupied itself has occupied the position of being the leading growth country in the, in the world for decades and decades, for over a century. It's because we have been the, we have been the destination of a lot of immigrants. There's a, good, there's a good point to that. The people who immigrate are the more energetic, more enthusiastic, the people who really want to get out and make something of their life, the lazy people stay at home. Now, you can say that people come across the border or come across somewhere to get welfare benefits, but by and large, it's not been true. What we see is first-, second-, and third-generation year, year generation immigrants tend to do much better and work much harder and have lower crime rates than the people who were born here. That's just reality. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me, too, particularly as an older guy. I remember walking into Walmart one night or actually early in the morning, to buy something. And the TVs were all set to Spanish-language, this was in Georgetown. TVs were all set to Spanish-language, and they were stocking the boxes of stuff on the shelves. Well, the people who were stocking the boxes of stuff on the shelves were all Hispanic-speaking people, at least they looked Hispanic to me. And the boxes were all turned with the Spanish side out. Of course, they wanted to be able to read what it was that they were putting up on the shelves, and I couldn't figure out where anything was, and it made me profoundly uncomfortable like I was losing my country. I know the discomfort and I understand it. I also recognize that when I read history, it's critical to understand that this has happened before. The last major wave before the Hispanic wave that's coming in was from Eastern Europe. And an, interestingly, an interesting point, by the way, before the pandemic, the number of immigrants from Asia were exceeding the number of immigrants that were Hispanic in the United States and were rising. So we'll see when the pandemic is over how this works out again. But those are major economic issues. I was talking about the major lessons we can learn from what happened. The market crashed. If you didn't bail out, you're probably a happy camper right now. If you did bail out, you're probably not listening to the show anyway. As it recovered, it surged past where it was before. Now, is that unusual? No. Matter of fact, if you want to take a look at the the big, when you have a market crash, the recovery doesn't just stop with recovery. It goes into bigger growth. Why? Because during the recession, during the time the market is down, there is a great deal of work goes on to make businesses more efficient. We've seen productivity rise at unusually about 4.5% a year recently, as opposed to 1% and 2% we saw in the past. Employers are learning to get more done with fewer people, and prices are starting to equalize, which doesn't feel, it doesn't feel very comfortable if you're used to paying low prices. But this is an important thing to recognize. Like I said, we are due for another correction. When it's going to happen, nobody knows. I don't think it's going to happen immediately, but then again, I can't forecast pandemics or anything else. But it's important in your portfolio that you be prepared for a correction. You say, what would happen in a correction? Well, let's just say that we have a correction or a bear market in the last 18 months. That's, by the way, about the standard length of one. Something like 1987, which by the way, scholars have still not figured out why the 1987 market crash happened definitively. There's some guesses but nobody's figured it out definitively. We had a 30% crash in the market in just a few days, and it took about 18 months to recover. If you're drawing on your investment portfolio to live on, do you have 18 months of reserves to draw on while the market is down so you don't have to liquidate equities in a down market? That's the question you need to ask yourself. If you don't, then it's important to build up, to, to build up your uh, reserves, build up your cash positions or your short-term bond positions, to a position where you will have enough to cover at least 18 months. We think think that's very, very important. matter of fact, we have a name for it in our firm called Dry Powder. Then invest the rest of your money for long and intermediate term growth. What's intermediate term growth? A chunk of your money, and that's generally around 25%, that's not set in concrete, by the way. It varies from one person to another, sometimes pretty dramatically. Should be in relatively conservative dividend-paying and interest-paying securities that probably don't do real well in a bull market. They're the boring stocks, the boring and sometimes the preferred stocks and sometimes the convertible bonds. But basically things that pay interest, that are pretty secure financially, that are not at all exciting. And if you tell people you own the stock, they, their eyes glaze over. Then take the rest of your money, however much you can feel that you can afford to ride through a bear market on, and invest it for long-term growth. And when you invest for long-term growth, it's important that you recognize that buying into the top of a bull market, not knowing exactly where the top is, and buying into the upper portions of a bull market right now is probably not the best way to get good long-term growth. We favor value. That's not to say that growth doesn't have its place. It certainly has its place, and a lot of people are investing in it. That's why it's so high. But growth stocks, particularly large-cap growth stocks, tend to do very, very well in a bull market and do very, very poorly in a bear market. And when you average them out over the years, they don't do all that well. Buying shares in companies or buying into mutual funds that are trading at or below their fair market value, as determined by historic numbers, is extremely boring. But every academic research and every research we've done indicates that over the long term, that is the most effective way to have a long-term positive return. This is what we refer to as a balanced portfolio—one that's and in, in, there's no set percentage of any of these for anybody. The 60-40 rule, by the way, the old 60-40 rule of thumb, where 60% in, in the S&P 500 stock index and 40% in a bond index, just won't get you there now. Uh, the reason is bonds are paying such a phenomenally low interest rate, and they're so overvalued. Bonds are likely to not return much of anything. So basically, you've only invested—you've invested 60% of your portfolio in something. That is, over, that is at fair market value or overpriced. I'm, I'm not saying that everybody needs to do that. I'm not saying that everybody needs to invest in value. But we believe, and we certainly believe, it's certainly borne good fruit over the years, that investing in companies that are fairly valued makes sense. That's, by the way, something else that Warren Buffett believes in. So that was a long-winded answer to a very simple question about market valuations. Again, this is Jeff McClure. You're listening to the Personal Wealth Coach. If you'd like to contact me to have me comment on anything or ask questions, the email is jeff at tpwc.com. Talking about the, we talked a little bit about the pandemic, but let's talk about it some more. We talked about the Purchasing Managers Index for the United States being up in the 60s, both in manufacturing and in, in, in services. That is, isn't oddly, oddly enough, not true in Asia right now purchasing managers index across Asia have dropped below 50. Why? Because of COVID. We look in the United States and we say, well, we pretty much got COVID whipped, we think. You now we're still waiting to see what happens with the Delta variant as it spreads across the country. But it's a relatively minor irritation at this point, And people who are vaccinated have a very, very low probability of winding up in ICU and dying. Uh, people who are not vaccinated, that's not necessarily true. We're still losing three or four people a week in Bell County alone. I think, um, uh, the state of Texas lost 49 the other day. People died of COVID. Virtually all of those, as far as I could tell, all of those were unvaccinated persons, by the way. But it's not happening in the rest of the world. In places like Vietnam, India, and China, where they, through quarantine, managed to contain the spread of the virus and started to open up again, are beginning to shut down again because they haven't had the vaccination rates that we have. And their vaccines that they're using, in many cases, are the Chinese vaccine, and they're not particularly effective. The Chinese vaccine is only about 50% effective against the disease. And as a result, they're suffering economically at this point and may go back into recession. There's a great deal of irony in that uh, the United States took it on the nose, and for many years we still have the highest number of uh, cases and pretty much the highest number of deaths, but India is trying to catch up with us pretty quickly. We took it on... We took it on the nose with a very decentralized, chaotic system in the early stages of the, of the COVID pandemic. But now that the COVID pandemic is coming under control in the United States, it's coming under control not because we have quarantined, not because we have shut things down in the economy, but because we developed some very effective vaccines. The only problem is we're kind of stuck with a lot of people not getting vaccinated, and that puts them at risk. And as the Delta variant spreads... We're seeing pockets of high concentration of the, of, the, uh, of the disease hit again. So if you haven't been vaccinated, please reconsider for the sake of yourself and the sake of the economy. We only have about 60% of the United States vaccinated, and that means that we're still susceptible to a pandemic again. If we can get it up to 70% or higher, we're probably in pretty good shape. So those of you who haven't, consider that. Talking about another subject, if you have a retirement account that you have inherited Or you do inherit at some point. The rules have changed, and a lot of people knew about that rules knew about the rule changes, but other people didn't. It used to be that if you inherited a retirement account, an IRA, from your mother or father or somebody that's in your family, you could extend your withdrawal of the money from the IRA over your IRS life expectancy, which could be quite a long time. Well, with the Secure Act that passed last year, that changed. Now you have to take it out within 10 years, and there was some confusion about that. When I say take it out within 10 years, you can wait until t- the 10th year and take it out all at once. You can take it out all up front. You can take it out in any number of ways that you wanted it to. For the initial IRS guidance on it indicated that you still needed to take required minimum distributions from it. That's not true. They've now clarified that. So what do you do if you have a parent or, or somebody who's going to leave you a large IRA benefit well, you need to very carefully look at your tax situation and figure out how to take it out. We recommend generally taking it out in such a way that you equalize the distributions over a 10-year period. Why? Because you can be thrown into a very high tax bracket. I was a little surprised by the fact that a lot of people, I was surprised at the people who didn't understand that. If you have an IRA and you take a lot of money out of it, not only do you pay taxes on it, and if you're, of course, if, let's say you're over 59 and a half and you have an IRA and you take a big chunk of money out of it, Regular IRA. Not only do you pay higher taxes on it, not in the penalty, of course, if you're under fifty-nine and a half. But let's say you're over fifty-nine and a half, and you take a big chunk of money out, it's added to your income for purposes of calculating your tax bracket. I had a had a person ask me about taking out eight hundred thousand dollars from their IRA to buy a building, and I said it would take a minimum of one point two million dollar withdrawal to net eight hundred thousand dollars. In other words, at a minimum, they would pay fifty percent of the value of what they took out to the IRS. And they were shocked. But that's the reality of it. It's important if you have an IRA, or, and you're going to take money out of it, that you recognize it's designed to be taken out of over a long period of time slowly. If you have an inherited IRA, the clock starts ticking the moment the person who left it to you dies. And you have 10 years to get that money out of there. And during that 10-year period, it's very important that you spread it out. Now, if you've lost a job or you have a period of time when you have unusually low income, that's a good time to take the money out. And by the way, taking out one-tenth of it each year doesn't get the job done either, presuming you have it invested where it grows. So let's just say you got a 10% growth or a 5%. Let's say you got a 5% growth per year in your IRA over that time period you're going to have a lot more money to take out at the end than you will at the beginning. The other thing about having a lot more money to take out at the end, you need to factor in the fact, I like that, factor in the fact, that tax rates are going to go up. That's a fact, that is a simple reality. No, it's not President Biden doing it. It's the Tax Act that was, uh, that was signed by President Trump that said that at some point, 2025 specifically, tax rates would revert back to the old rates, which are much higher than they are today. Well, that's only four years from now. So in four years, your tax rates are going to go up no matter what income level you're at, unless Congress decides to cut taxes, which I think is about unlikely as anything I can imagine, given the level of deficit that we have. So you've got four years left during which you'll have relatively low taxation to get the money out. You'll have, if if we get a good growth in the market over the next decade or so, which by the way I anticipate, we will see that the market value of your IRA should grow if you've invested it to grow. And by the way, the one sure way of avoiding taxes is to lose money. I don't recommend it as a way of getting the job done. Continue to invest that IRA to make it grow. There's a couple of things you need to do other than planning to take it out in a a manner that is most consistent with your tax well-being. That is, what are you going to do with the money when you take it out? I strongly recommend you reinvest it. Sure, spend some of it, but if you if you want to ta- if you get a large IRA from your mother or father or whoever, and you inherit it and you've got to get it out within 10 years, first front load the taking the money out, unless you're in a high income position, you're about to retire, so that you can get it out during the low tax years. The other reason you want to front load the t- taking of the money out to some degree is because it's probably going to be the growth in there is probably going to increase the value over time. Now, why do I say that? because in any 10-year period in the history of the United States post-World War II, you basically, in a balanced, well-balanced, diversified portfolio, saw growth. Now, there are certain circumstances where that might not be very much growth, but you saw some growth in there. If you put it in the bank, obviously, you can forecast exactly how much it's going to grow in the near future because you get an interest rate of very little, but that's up to you. But the point is two things you need to do. One, take the money out in a manner that is consistent with maintaining your tax bracket at its current level or preferably not raising it too much, maybe raising it in one bracket. And secondly, know what you're going to do with the money when you take it out before you take it out. And I strongly recommend reinvesting it and reinvesting it in a diversified fashion so that it will last you the rest of your life. Yeah, you got to pay the taxes in the first 10 years, but that's no big thing. It's really no big thing in the long run if you invest it correctly and you invest it carefully so that you don't wind up paying a lot of taxes later. It's a bit complicated, but that's why we have jobs at the personal wealth Coaches trying to figure out how to do that. Again, this is Jeff McClure and the personal wealth coach. We need to take a break for commercials now. You can contact me at jeff at tpwc.com with your questions, thoughts, or comments, and we'll be back on the other side of these important words from our sponsors.
1: And we're back with more of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jeff
0: McClure. Jake is on vacation and technically digitally challenged Jeff is at the controls with his aged brain looking at all these little computer screens and switches and dials and sliders and microphones. I got two different microphones working here, so hopefully I sound reasonably good out there. Um, One of the things that's going on in the United States today is a housing boom, and it is... parallels the number of houses being sold and bought well mostly being well i guess if they're sold they have to be bought is paralleling the 2007 housing bubble is there a housing bubble going on not really maybe reason that there's a housing bubble going on if there's a housing bubble the reason there's a housing boom going on is that a lot of people who have moved out of the cities and who moved from one place to another who've abandoned apartments and want to buy houses because they want to work remotely in many cases Even in here in Salado, I've heard anecdotally that houses before they're actually listed on the market have bidding wars going on for them. There's a shortage of houses in the United States. Why is there a shortage of houses? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The housing construction industry took a big hit in the 2007 through 2009 recession. A lot of the people who used to work in housing building left and never came back. So the, the industry never fully recovered from that. During the pandemic, it happened again. A lot of people who were working in housing, no longer building houses, no longer able to work in building houses, and they found something else to do. So we have a critical shortage of houses being built. We also have prices going up for the land to build the houses on because there's a lot of money chasing it. Next thing that's causing the problem with the housing shortage is the price of the stuff to build houses. The materials to build houses has been... Raised dramatically, and there's a couple of reasons again for that. Uh, one was the tariffs, another was the fact that there's uh, constraints on logistics. There's bottlenecks across the world trying to get the materials together. As we, as I mentioned last hour, we tried to buy a gallon of paint to do a spot, do some spot painting on our house, and literally the base paint that you put the dye in was not available at uh, at two different major places where you could buy it in local area. We just have to wait and hope that some comes in. The combination of the freeze and the pandemic and the snapback and the switch from one type to another of things that people wanted to buy have really put a constraint on things. And that has coincided, as it often does, with a huge increase in demand. So housing prices are growing up dramatically. But here's the question that the Federal Reserve is asking right now and debating. The Federal Reserve is still buying mortgage bonds, keeping interest rates, interest rates low on mortgages. And members of the Federal Reserve Board have been discussing openly that maybe they ought to back off buying those bonds. They're buying two things. They're buying federally backed Fannie Mae, Jenny Mae, and they're buying treasury securities, keeping interest rates low. You might think, well, why do they need to do that? Well, interest rates low keep businesses functioning that otherwise would not be able to function, and we're still running roughly 95 or 10% behind normal in the economy. And so there's companies out there that are still hurting. Uh, a lot of companies have been able to do well because of the Small Business Administration loans, others have been able to do well because they can borrow money at very, very low interest rates. Uh, Even junk bonds, we mentioned, were running below the inflation rate right now. This is a stimulus to the economy, but the Federal Reserve at some point is going to start withdrawing those. And people have asked me what would cause the correction. I think the most likely cause to a correction in the markets right now is the Federal Reserve backing off on its purchasing of bonds in the open market, which would cause interest rates to start to rise. Uh, ironically enough, the dip on Thursday in the markets was caused by interest rates falling too far. The markets are running scared, which I guess is a good thing. The question is whether the mortgage market still needs propping up. By the way, the Federal Reserve currently, based on the minutes that were released last week, looks like they're going to be the early 2023 when they start backing off their bond purchase. I say backing off, they're not going to stop them. Late 2022, early 2023 they're going to start reducing their bond purchases, which will allow interest rates to gradually rise. At that point, we'll see who is functioning. We'll find out where the zombie companies are pretty quickly. Zombie companies are companies that don't make a profit, but because they're able to borrow money at amazingly low interest rates, and the banks have excess money to loan them, or somebody has excess money to loan them, they're still functioning based on borrowed money. At some point, they either become profitable, or they run out of money to borrow, and they start to fail. And when they fail, it'll be an, it'll be an interesting thing. I don't see a great deal of problem with that, but I do see the potential for a correction in the market when it happens. Fed, by the way, the Fed policy letter that they sent to the Congress used an interesting term, as has uh, the chairman of the Reserve, Ch- chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell. The term powerful support. He's using the term powerful support is going to be provided to the economy until we get back to full employment, and he's perfectly willing to let some inflation run. So get ready for some. Inflation. Get ready from, for some uh, labor problems to continue to go. By the way, talking about growth, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, has lifted its global global growth forecast for 2021 to six percent. Now, why is that important? Historically, the United States has flagged far behind the global growth economy because emerging markets grow faster than historically faster than developed markets like the United States. At the same time that the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, is lifting its global growth rate to 6%, major economic forecasters in the United States who historically have been correct, like Moody's and Morningstar, are saying 6.4% is the likely GDP growth in the United States for this year. I don't know if you're aware that we were running 1% and 2% and have been for the last several years. Actually, for about the last decade, we've been running 1% and 2% uh, GDP growth. A 6.4% growth is pretty astonishing. Uh, as a matter of fact, when the second quarter GDP growth is released, and they release it on an annualized basis, meaning they don't, shell, they don't say how much the economy grew during the quarter, they say how much the, economy, the rate of growth of the economy, it's like miles per hour, is likely to be above 10%, which is something that you might want to, it's one of those headlines that we tend to save at the personal wealth coach because we're not likely to see it again in many, many years. And there's also a consensus among economists and major economic reporting and forecasting agencies that we have now exceeded the GDP growth that we would have achieved had there been no pandemic. In other words, had there been no pandemic and we continued with the same policies from 2019, everything just continued along the same with no 2020 lockdown, where would we be in the GDP right now? And the answer is likely at a lower state than we really are, than we are today. Those are important things to remember when people are focusing focusing on the labor shortages and they're focusing on the things that Uh are not working really well. Speaking of the market, I mentioned this at the beginning of the last hour, but in case you missed it, the market for the week rose. The stock market, as measured by the S&P 500, rose 0.4% after taking a dip on Thursday, and it's at another record high. And that's one of the things to keep your eye on as well. There's a tendency to get pessimistic at this point. There's a tendency to get pessimistic at any point. But the markets have done exceptionally well. Your portfolio probably have done exceptionally well. And the important thing to be in a position to recognize right now is the markets are at record highs and have been at record highs for some time. And I mentioned this earlier, but it's important to remember, it's really hard to find in history any position where the markets have doubled in value from a bottom without a correction. And a correction is when it drops at least 10%, when the stock market drops at least 10%. Corrections are caused by different things they are generally caused by something totally extraneous to the economy, but people get scared and bolt, and we are approaching a double in the market. So just be prepared for a correction. Don't panic when it happens. Recognize it's normal behavior, and that it's likely to happen at some point. Now, if it doesn't happen, I think we'll all be very, very happy, uh, but if it doesn't happen at some point, people are going to get in ex- irrational exuberance Is going to get carried away mentioned earlier that both Bitcoin and the SPACs, the special acquisition purchase companies, that are extremely speculative, have both had, both in technically bear markets today, which is a good idea. I think they're scary. I think they're something that you should stay away from. The other thing is that the thing that's driving the market continues to be the fangs. Amazon, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Alphabet. Those are high-growth, large companies, and they're priced in most cases, price priced earnings ratios based on current earnings or next year's earnings that are absurd. And they're basically companies that they're, they're about 22 percent of the valuation of the S&P 500 right now, which means they're really big and they're really driving the train in the S&P 500. And they're priced based on five years of earnings growth that continues like it is today, which I think is extremely unlikely because, among other things, Congress and the Federal Trade Commission are both looking at The fact that some of these companies have gotten to the point where they've become effective monopolies and they're likely to be broken up, either broken up or restricted in their growth. I don't think it's at all coincidental that some of the leaders of these companies, Jeff Bezos, for example, is retiring at this point. Amazon has grown tremendously and it's it's reaching its limits on what it can do. There's a limit to how far it can go and how big it can grow. And it's going to hit that at some point. So if you're involved in either an S&P 500 index fund, which is 22 percent, those, or you're involved in the high, high large cap growth areas, recognize that there's a significant risk there. And by the way, don't think you can get out before the other people do because it gets bumpy and recover, get bumpy and recover before I, typically, before we get a correction.
1: Thank you very much for listening, if you have. If you haven't, then no thanks to you. (laughs) Um, If you'd like to talk to us off the air, we have voicemail waiting locally during the week at?
0: 254-947-1111.
1: Real live people during the week, voicemail during the weekend, and that is also 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to the webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can email us through there, contact us through there, podcasts, newsletters, all that good stuff. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.